This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. of this podcast and my work in general is that we get into trouble thinking about human life with technology in no small part because our minds are full of limited cherry-picked examples of what human life with technology even is. We generalize from a bad and too narrow sample of human reality in everyday life. We use such bad examples that frequently we are deluded. Thinking our way beyond the reigning images of technology in our society, which are so often dominated by Silicon Valley-esque ideas of innovation speak, digital fetishism, disruption, and other bullshit, is important for many reasons, including because we must free ourselves from them if we are to imagine a better future. And I firmly believe that the road to better imagining comes not from science fiction, which is typically just a projection of what we already think anyway, but from studying the huge variety of human ways of doing things through history and across cultures. This has been a big theme of several of our recent episodes. In my conversation with Kate Freeman about her book, An Archaeology of Innovation, we talked about how people tend to focus too much on recent, especially digital technologies. Last episode with Diana Montano, about her book, Electrifying Mexico, we talked about how technology studies has focused far too much on the United States, Europe, and a handful of other rich industrial nations. Future episodes will continue to prod at these kinds of issues. Our guest in today's episode, Phil Scranton, 
University Board of Governors Professor Emeritus of the History of Industry and Technology at Rutgers University Camden, has made a long career out of challenging reigning images of how businesses work. If we look back at the history of business history, we see that for a period from the 1970s through perhaps the early 2000s, it was dominated by the thinking of Alfred Chandler, a professor at Harvard Business School, who wrote about the history of big businesses, companies like General Motors, DuPont, General Electric, and Standard Oil. The story of business history was the story of how and why these giant firms arose in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when they basically had not existed before in all of human history. But Phil Scranton, who was an intellectual hero of mine, never bought into this story because of all the things the story left out, and he set about to make our pictures of the world much more complicated. So whereas Chandlerian history focused on large, publicly owned firms, Phil wrote about proprietary, family-owned companies. Whereas Chandlerian history focused on mass production, Phil examined specialized and batch production, which continue to make up large parts of the global economy today. Whereas Chandlerian history focused on products that were produced in a routine, ongoing manner, Phil pointed out that a huge portion of the economy is made up of projects, including everything from construction and building rehabilitation to military defense contracts. The list of Phil's endeavors to complicate our thinking go on and on. More recently, Phil has turned to examining enterprise in socialist and communist economies, a topic almost wholly unexamined in business history. In this conversation, Phil and I talk about his new book, Business Practice in Socialist Hungary, Volume 1, Creating the Theft Economy, which examines Hungarian business practices from 1945 to 1957. Regular listeners will pick up on a few recurrent peoples and things themes. First, maintenance and repair play an absolutely fascinating role in this story, and Phil is one of the greatest historians of maintenance writing today. Second, as in my interview with Diana Montano, theft and illegality are a big topic in Phil's account, and you'll soon see that future episodes will be tracking this theme even more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Phil. I think you'll see we all have a lot to learn from him. Get excited. So Phil, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. So business practice in socialist Hungary, I mean, I think that this, if we look at what gets written in business history, for the most part, and we look mm -hmm. at like the reviews in, in any business history, um, you know, journal, this is, this book is an outlier in all kinds of ways in the history of industry and, and technology. So, you know, if you were going to talk to a stranger, be it a business historian or just someone on an airplane, not that we're traveling these days, or what your book is about and, and what you were trying to do with the book, what is it? Well, it's about the fact that there really are socialist businesses. Mm -hmm. um, years ago, when I was working on the first of these books, the one on China that you've seen before, um, I had a coffee with a friend of mine who's a writer 
And I said, I'm working on business uh, practice and businesses, enterprises in, in communist China, in the PRC. And she said, there's no such thing. Uh -huh. And I said, no, no, there are all these people out there. They do the stuff that our guys do. They hire people, they fire people if they can. They try to balance budgets. They put stuff out the door. They, they have to keep track of accounts. They do all these business things. Mm -hmm. But they're not doing them for profit, at least in the sense that we understand it in regular mainstream economics. They're doing it to build socialism. Well, mm -hmm. that's a very different purpose. And so one of the things to try to think about is how do they work? How do they do their work? How do they think about the future? How do they manage their money? Nobody yeah. was actually asking those kind of questions in business history because business history is about capitalism. Right. And you think it's just kind of our blinders, you know, and what the way business, I mean, we could get, get into the, you know, the history of business history and how it developed in capitalist countries to explain the way capitalism had developed. Do you think it's just those kind of cultural blinders that have so far uh, kept us from seeing these enterprises in, in socialist nations? Well, it's, it's that and more. I mean, one of the things I've always done because of my training in social history and related uh, neighborhoods is to look for the silences. Look, look for mm -hmm. where nobody's talking about something. Now, there are a lot of silences that are well-deserved. Um, yes, you know, right. Who cares, right? right? There's some silences. There's some silences that you realize after a little um, time are strategic. There's silences that protect the narrative of the majority, hmm. which is why racism is getting thrown out of American schools and lots of other things. There are silences that protect the ideological primacy. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually talk about socialism, right? But we don't talk about very many developing countries, quote unquote, developing countries, yeah. third world countries. We don't care about them. Mm -hmm. We care about us. And then we care about, in business history anyway, people who look like us, yeah. maybe not necessarily white people, but people who look like us organizationally, managerially, budget-wise, accounting-wise. And those are the people we pay attention to. People who don't look like us or who do things differently are of no interest particularly. How would that advance your possibility of tenure? Yeah. To go wandering off into Eastern Bananaville. Um, so that's what I do, because I don't need tenure. I'm a long time past that. Um, yeah. But I also, it's just a persistent thing. When, when somebody wrote a review, this lovely woman from Rochester, University of Rochester, wrote a review of the hmm. China book. She said that years ago, that, that Patrick Friedenson and I had posed ourselves a challenge to look at business history differently from the way it has been customarily done. And that this book on China was part of the answer to that. Yeah. To look at things in a different vein and to try to ask fresh questions. Well, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you can answer them, but you sure as hell can ask them and see what you can find in the sources. Yeah, I mean, one way I think about what you've been doing for the last little bit, at least half a decade now is that you and Patrick uh, wrote this book, Reimagining Business History, where among other, you have several recommendations book in this book, but one of them was to go beyond the US, Europe, and a couple other like heavily covered countries like Japan and these places, right? And the way I remember the story is that you were making a presentation about this and someone basically said, well, you do it, right? Is that, is there some truth to- uh, Oh, absolutely, having... it's, that's, that's <laughs> totally correct. I mean, it's, it, it's gonna be mythologized over time, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but the basic argument was, so you want to reimagine stuff, go do some reimagining research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought, well, all right. But the, the key issue was back to where we were talking about somehow walking into a place with our own assumptions and not allowing the local people to talk. Yeah. Um, 
one of the things that I was we were trying to say in that section of the book was don't take the US and Europe as the normal. Take yeah. them as one kind of performance, one kind of historical act. And when you go to someplace else, don't walk in with the expectation that you can assess the goings on in that environment on the basis of the grounds that you have come from. You, mm -hmm. you have to step back, you have to keep your mouth shut for a while, and you have to try to see how people act in their own environment and then try to make some sense out of that from the scholarly tradition that you come from. And yeah. that's a very different thing. So not taking, it's not just going somewhere because lots of people have done that. It's going mm -hmm. somewhere and not taking your own set of formal practices and assumptions as what should be the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the preface to the Hungry Book, um, you, you present a list that you and uh, Patrick created called the Terrible 12 Tasks, um, uh, which are things that nearly all business enterprises need to address, including things like defining the enterprise's purpose and methods of operation and securing and allocating resources. So on this kind of topic about, you know, like letting the locality or like the place speak, do you find like how, wh why do you find like a list like this useful for doing this kind of work? Well, if, if of course, it, one of the things it does is it, it, it opens your mind to realize how complicated businesses are, mm -hmm. how many things people do. I mean, it's like teaching. People yeah. imagine teaching is you stand up and you give a talk. Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's not how any of it works. In fact, yeah. we're getting away from that over the years. So doing a business is not just unlocking the front door and taking the revenues from the people who come and buy your cookies. Um, there's, there's just so many dimensions to it. So yeah. if you start out by, and as we did, I mean, there, there could be more, but we got 12 core ideas, their core tasks that people had to address. Then you go to a new place like Hungary, for example, um, and you say, well, how do people answer those challenges? What, what do they do? Yeah. So you're not coming in with a set of solutions. You're coming in with a set of problems that folks have to solve. Mm -hmm. And so what's the purpose of the business? Um, well, in, in Hungary, the purpose of the business is to build socialism and keep people employed. Because one of the most fundamental propositions in the socialist canon is there shall be no un unemployment. Hmm. Now that has all sorts of positive things to it. I mean, it gives yeah. people in jobs a sense of security. It gives people a sense that the, the 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 country is being run by the people who actually live in it. But it also has all sorts of unintended consequences, which everybody has talked about for years. But yeah. that's a very different base proposition. Your job is to keep people employed and to build socialism. And if mm -hmm. you start from that, you begin to see the actions of management in a very different light then you might if you just said, well, these guys are deficient, you know, they just don't know what they're doing. No, they know what they're doing. It's yeah. just really hard to do in right, a circumstance right. where you have not very many resources and all sorts of political interventions and trouble that comes from every direction. But yeah. they know what they're up to and what their goals are. And that's important. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, like one thing that if if I walked into uh a classroom of graduate students. And I said, you know, we, we should really uh, do more business history on these places that aren't the US, Europe, and these couple other heavily studied places. I think the the uh, uninitial reaction would be like language as a barrier. But in your projects, you found um, you found a body of sources that allow you to to get at business history in these places without being, you know, an expert in Chinese and 
Hungarian, and you know, we could keep going down the list of places. Notoriously popular languages, right? Chinese yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, what 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 are the source bases for for the projects that you've been mining these this last half decade? Well, or so? as an old lefty, it's it's painful to pay homage to the Cold War. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I owe my um, heart to the company store, the 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 guys in Washington who in the 1940s realized that the United States was now a global power in the way that we had never been before, mm -hmm. seriously, and that we didn't know anything mm -hmm. about that global, whatever it was. Um, most, most painfully, um, we did not have a deep reservoir of specialists um, in the language, culture, politics, economics, history of probably 40 nations that we now had to take seriously. Yeah. All right, so you know, we had Russian, Russian refugees and so on. We had some folks who had come out of China at the end of the, the, the uh, Republican period. And, and, and we had various folks who were displaced persons from the middle of, of Europe. But honestly, in the middle of the time that we were operating, which is not just the Cold War, but also the Red Scares of the McCarthy period, a lot of those people had uncertain backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So there was this whole complicated thing. You just couldn't hire experts and have them tell you stuff. So what did they do? The, the government through the Department of Commerce created a massive translation project in which they solicited, had subscriptions, I'm sure, literally hundreds of newspapers and journals, probably thousands actually, if you totaled it all up, in yeah. 40 or more languages. And they got all that stuff shipped to Washington and they had a big building south of where the um, Air and Space Museum is now. Hmm. Um, and they they brought in translators. They brought in people um, and they had, you know, they had a classic kind of thing. You have translators and they have supervisors to make sure the translations are decent and so on. And so they translated the daily newspapers from Budapest. Mm -hmm. Not everything. You know, they, they were trying to provide information for foreign policy decision making. Okay. So they didn't right. they didn't go through the marriage columns and the obituaries, right? But they went through the news as much as they could. And then they mm -hmm. realized, particularly in the, in the Hungarian case, they realized that the, the Budapest newspapers were party mouthpieces. Mm -hmm. And so you got sort of the official drill from those guys. But out in the provinces, there's 19 counties out uh, beyond Budapest to the west, south, and, and east. Every one of those county newspapers, although it was run by the Communist Party, had its own voice. They they were really huh. mad about things all the time. They were really <laughs> critical. They yelled at the guys in Budapest because the guys in Budapest were annoying. And huh. so they started <laughs> with the Budapest press. And then after about a year with the Budapest press, they said, no, no, that's no good. That's no good. They went to the provincial newspapers and started translating uh, by by my lights, I don't know, probably 20, 30,000 articles from the provincial wow. newspapers over the course of 15 years, which are absolutely priceless, absolutely hmm. priceless stuff. And so that's all been translated. It's all on a giant website, along with all the stuff from China, along with stuff from the Soviet Union. Probably half of everything on these giant websites is from the Soviet Union. And it's all mm -hmm. available in English. And it's none of it's classified, none of it's secret or anything. Mm -hmm. It's what it's the dialogue that was going on in political, economic, and academic circles within these various countries as abstracted for American policymakers starting in 1957 and going until 1992. Okay. So on this website, there's a, there are more than a million documents, wow. that, more than a million reports, some of which have 20 or 30 documents in each one. There's just, a, just billions of stuff. And so mm -hmm. I kind of bored into that. 
downloaded thousands of pages, read it all and said, oh, this is very neat. Look at all these things going on that I never heard of before. Are they translating reports too, or is it mostly, is, is newspapers the, really the main part of it? Well, they, they do um, all sorts of things. They do government decrees. They do reports mm -hmm. from ministries. They do radio broadcasts. I mean, okay. all kinds of, yeah, it's really quite extraordinary. Um, and in consequence, that provides a foundation for understanding how people are making choices. Mm -hmm. at least how they're talking about making the choices that they're making and how they respond to things that go wrong. So I just had an experience the other day of digging up a whole pile of material um, on the hoof and mouth disease that hit Hungarian agriculture in 1965. Huh. It turns out there was a global epizootic for all the environmental people out there. Um, and this went through Africa and Latin America and across Europe of, hmm. of hoof and mouth disease in cattle, horses, pigs, etc. And the government stepped up and did extraordinary things very quickly to isolate the places where it had come together. And you think about this as a context of the pre-war regime, which would have done nothing. Yeah. They just would have been tens of thousands of cattle had died and they'd somehow absorb that. Eventually it would go away. No, the government stepped in and said, we're going to help everybody get out of this thing as fast as possible. And we're going to bring in all the veterinarians we can find. And they had, all, there were actually vaccines that they could use for um, cattle that weren't affected. The whole schmear, right? Yeah. A mobilization of the sort that we see someplace well and someplace is badly with, with COVID. And so mm -hmm. you look at this and you see this kind of thing going on and you realize here's a communist government, which is doing what I call a legitimation initiative. Mm -hmm. They they have come in, Kadar and his guys came in in 57 after the mass slaughters in Budapest as the Russian tanks killed hundreds of people um, and many, many more were exiled. 200,000 people left the country, bunches were executed. This is the new government. Happy day. New government. Hello. And so one of the things you realize is that that kind of government has realized that it can't govern by force. It can't govern by coercion. Huh. It can't govern by threat. It has to figure out how to get something that looks like consent, mm -hmm. which is a classic political problem. Yeah. And what we do in order to get that consent um, is to begin to behave in ways that suggest that they're not nuts, that they're not <laughs> cruel, that they're they're yeah. not they're not Stalinists, and so on. Mm -hmm. And these are what I call legitimation initiatives. They're actually a term that's used in political science. And what you're doing is to say to the people. Here's an example of our specific performance that will give you confidence that we are not bad folk. We may have done bad things. There are lots of people yeah. have done bad things, but we are now looking for the future of the country as best we can. And there are a whole series of these that I'm talking about in the second book. Um, huh. that try to make the, and, and, and indeed there's universal assent amongst the historians of that period that Kadar um, convinced the people that he was a good guy, that he was a good ruler even though he had ordered the execution of his predecessor. Oh boy. I mean, so this is a long haul and you do a lot of different things. One of which was to open up to tourism. Another was to start translating American agricultural journals, all huh. sorts of ways to show that the state is on your side. Hmm. Instead of being an oppressor and a, and a totalitarian bunch of idiots. Now you still have contradictions. I Meaning these guys are a one party state. They control through a single budget, the allocations for all sorts of, of institutions within the country. This is not, um, you know, your everyday democracy by any means. Right. 
But at the same time, they can't govern by torture. Hmm. So they have to find a way. So here's another part about socialism that then becomes useful. How do these guys, many of whom come to power through violence, wind up being able to run a country for decades without mm -hmm. having massive prison camps and all the rest? Mm -hmm. and you have to persuade people. And it's not, it's not false consciousness. It's not delusional. Um, it's, it's material incentives. It's guaranteed legal. One of the things my co-ops do, starting in 64, um, my co-ops, oh dear. Anyway, um, <laughs> they start hiring lawyers. Yeah? Yeah. They start hiring lawyers. The, the ones in Borsod County kept 13 lawyers full-time occupied with all of their legal paperwork and suppressing and, and adjudicating and, and mediating and disputes and all this sort of stuff. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that comes out of this process is the understanding on the part of lots of people that you can count on the government to do tomorrow what it did yesterday. Hmm. And that's no small thing in an environment of, of upheaval and chaos that was the yeah. 1960s. So that's the kind of stuff you discover when you just go to the sources and sort of marinate in them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um you're you're um your first volume starts in 1945. So can you set the scene for us a bit? Where was Hungarian society at in 1945 when, when your story takes off? Um, mass destruction um, and deep division. The, the, uh, the government during the war was a fascist government allied with the Nazis. Something again that people don't necessarily remember about this period. Um, and they facilitated the um, destruction of Hungarian Jewry. Hmm. Um, and no lesser a person than Adolf Eichmann expressed his delight at the cooperation of the Hungarian authorities hmm. in rounding up the Jews. So this was not a good moment to be um, a Hungarian patriot because it wasn't clear what that meant. And yeah. at the end of the war, um, the, the Germans are eventually, they retreat, they're half, half driven out, half retreat, and the Soviets come charging through with masses, masses of troops and weaponry, and, and, and they, the, 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 the leftover Hungarian government, plus a whole bunch of the Nazis, fight to defend Budapest, which gets largely destroyed. Mm -hmm. The bridges are all crushed um, across the Danube. Um, thousands of buildings are blown up or damaged in one way or another. Again, thousands of people are killed. And the Soviet takeover is then is kind of one of those moments where you talk about owning the ruins. Hmm. So in that situation, um, the, the, the Russians were not exactly welcome. Yeah. Because one whole chunk of the population had been defeated. Um, there were many, many Jews amongst the communists who had been um, a part of the party in the Hungarian 30s and 40s and came back from Moscow because they ran away, of course, when they were being harassed and killed and slaughtered um, and wound up being uh, Moscow Stalinist. So there you have another layer of anti-Semitism that can get um, manipulated in one fashion or another. Hmm. And the consequence is that there's a brief period, about three years, when there's a kind of series of coalition governments, the largest party of which is the Peasants' Party called the Smallholders. But eventually, Rakozy, uh, Matias Rokozuni, who's the, the principal communist guy, managed to manipulate a series of elections, some of which were clearly fraudulent. Um, and the takeover by 
um, the Hungarian Workers' Party comes in 1949. And at that point, you have a real problem because you have a destroyed country, you have thousands of bridges that are down. They've been working on getting this rebuilt, but you know you have virtually no money to speak of. Yeah. The entire currency went into the worst hyperinflation in 45 and 6 that uh, the Europe has ever seen, much worse than the one in Germany in the early 20s. Um, and so they, they, the money system was in ruins. And now you're supposed to build socialism out of what? This, this wreck, this mess. Yeah. And you're supposed to build it according to what um, Uncle Joe uh, wants it to look like. So these are very unpleasant prospects going forward um, to try to create something that basically hardly anybody except the communist um, core wants to have happen. In the countryside, there are virtually no party members. Um, huh. yeah. the, the Communist Party in, in uh, uh, pre-war and wartime Hungary was almost entirely a Budapest affair. I mean, Budapest was big. It was, it was a million plus people in a country of 10 million. Mm -hmm. But even so, you know, it's it's just one compact place with a lot of industrial plants um, and the government apparatus. But if you go 20 miles outside, you're in the countryside. Yeah. And it's countryside all the way to Austria or all the way to Romania. There's just all these woods and fields. Mm -hmm. So the, this disconnect between the the power that these guys had, because the Russians were back there behind them, and the, the reach that they had is really powerful. And so they're they're playing a kind of of um, puppet match. It's not exactly a Pachemkin city, but it's a, it's a puppet member. They're trying to pull the right strings in order to have at least the appearance that socialism is succeeding when they know that nobody loves them. Nobody mm -hmm. wants them there except their dearest supporters, which is about, oh, three or 400,000 party members, again, in a company, a country of 10 million. So that's where they start and they try to manipulate the system in order to create a socialist um, a structure and it doesn't go very well. <laughs> no, it doesn't go. It is a, there are depressing stories in this book for sure. And many of them. Um, but before, before we like talk about kind of like the socialization of the economy and what they try to do, I mean, what, before the war, was it, a, you know, a capitalist economy? Was that a, was it, was it something recognizable in those terms or what, what did the economy look like before they, they start this game? Um, sure. There, before the war, there were lots of grand estates in the countryside um, owned by people who were leftover aristocracy and owned, by the way, in a very large way by the Catholic Church. Hmm. Um, huge amounts of land. There were lots of landless peasants. It could have, it could have been 1780 in France. Uh, people who just worked for the for the rich folk um, and had next to nothing. Mm -hmm. And in the cities, um, there in the big cities, there were a couple of smaller ones, but in the big city of, of Budapest, there were lots of big businesses by Hungarian standards of, of textile mm -hmm. mills with 700 people. Um, there there were three or four thousand folks in, the, in one of the the machine works down on Seppel Island. So it was an industrial city, but it was not industrial in the sense that we would think of as capitalist growth potential. Yeah. Um, it, had been, it had been cut off by the settlements of the First World War from German capital, especially from mm -hmm. Austrian capital. And so there was a whole period when Hungary was itself almost stagnant. And then, you know, you also remember that we had this very unfortunate thing called the Great Depression. That right. did not help. So by the time you get to the, the Second World War, um, Hungary's economy has become an appendage of the Nazi economy. Okay. And so all of the trade rules and the games that were played and the investment firms that came in 
we're from Berlin and Frankfurt and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and the entire operation was subsidiary uh, to the development of, of Nazi economic power. That's mm -hmm. that's not a terribly promising environment. And as you can see, it's sort of capitalist, but it's also yeah. more more state capitalist. So you know, the tobacco um, companies, the railroads, a whole series of other things were all national companies. There were no mm -hmm. private businesses in big chunks of the economy even then. And then if you look over at agriculture, you have these giant estates that are run by guys whose family has been there since the 16th century. Yeah. Um, and that all blows up. That all blows up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So as they as they try to get this socialist economy off the ground, um, how I mean, how do they think about business? So I mean, there's this term socialist enterprise, which I mean, I think is an oxymoron to many people, as, as you've <laughs> already talked about. But it's not. I mean, like th this is something people do. But like, how do they think about business? Like, are there entrepreneurs? Can you start a business? And if so, like, how do you go about that? No, um, no, yeah, no, no, exactly. Not yeah, not that. No, no, no. All right, so where you start is with the plan. Uh -huh. The plan, the first five-year plan, there was a three-year plan and then a five-year plan. You start with the plan because the plan is a, an attempt to coordinate all the elements of the economy so as to produce industrialization. And the plan's written by the party or the, the Well, the, the plan is written by the National Planning Office, which is okay. full of economists, but it's also full of Russians. Okay because the Russians know how to do a plan. They've been doing them for years. They've, They've been doing that for a while. The, the results weren't necessarily charming and wonderful, but nonetheless, they do have to set out a plan. Yeah. Um, and so you, you have these allocations of capital from the central bank. There's just one bank now. There's not a bunch of banks. There's just the National Bank of Hungary. And they allocate funds to various projects um, mm. through, through this, this investment trust. And then it involves uh, putting money for, out for machinery, putting money out for construction, putting money out, um, if, if it were for chemicals, stuff that has to be imported, they have to figure out where can they get things that they don't necessarily have the way to, a way to pay for from inside the block rather early on, and then later on um, from West Germany and other places, which they weren't even supposed to talk about. Hmm. But even so, at the beginning, the planners are trying to articulate a growth path which will maximize the value of the investments that they're using so as not to waste money because they're poor and they right. can't afford waste stuff. The, the source of the funds for investment is not the Soviet Union. Hmm. The, the Russians may give them some loans and stuff, but that, no, no, no. They have to generate these funds internally. Hmm. And the way you generate the funds is you pillage agriculture. This is also not unknown in the Russian case. Um, and so one of the things they had were what were, were known as forced deliveries. Um, and at harvest time, they, uh, the state procurement authorities would go all around the country with the trucks and, you know, whatever, um, and, and they would collect lots of stuff. They'd collect grain, they'd collect um, wine, they'd collect mm. um, various kinds of, of orchard products, fruits and things like that. Um, and 
they would pay incredibly tiny prices for these. Uh -huh. So it was a hugely skewed system. And the force collections were not for everything. They, they didn't take everything. No, they knew that people could, you know, if they starved in the countryside, you wouldn't have anything else to collect. Right. So, but they would take half of the crop arbitrarily, different numbers in different places, and they'd pay you far less than it was the case to produce it. They would resell that through the state retailing systems to the workers in the towns and cities hmm. at much higher prices, by the way, much, much higher prices. Yeah. So Hungary's food and clothing and all of everything, you know, cigarettes were way expensive. And the people in the countryside couldn't buy any of that stuff themselves. So they managed to steal enough to keep themselves alive. But the yeah. people in the cities complained bitterly because they couldn't get much of anything for their wages. And their wages had been, according to the plan, set very low so that, in fact, capital accumulation, a good term in socialism, hmm. capital accumulation would be very high, very robust. And with that accumulation, you could invest in manufacturing facilities. Okay. And so there are some estimates, I don't remember them off the top of my head, that as much as 30, 35% of the GNP in these early years was reinvested in economic development in the sense of factories and mines, yeah. and railways and reconstruction of the broken bridges and all of that. So they not only pillaged the countryside, they also squeezed the workers. Yeah. Which made everybody cheerful. <laughs> yes, very happy place. Uh, I mean, you you focus on kind of four areas or sectors in the in the book, agriculture, construction, commerce and manufacturing. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry, I think that the connections are already starting to come out in the story you're telling, but how do you end up settling on those four sectors in the well, book? Well, I wanted to see places where there were actual businesses. Mm -hmm. And so finance was no good and mining was no good because these were sort of national corporations, unified, one thing, no, no place to go. Um, but in all the other areas, there were lots of enterprises. So in, in, in agriculture, um, up until the late 1950s, there were tens of thousands of private farmers. Mm -hmm. The notion that this, the communists come in and all of a sudden you have this giant collectivization like the Russians did later, they actually yeah. didn't do it at the start either. Th that's all foolish because you can't afford to alienate any more than you're already gonna alienate the people in the countryside because you've gotta have the products from them. Yeah. And so you can't force them off the land and, and club them to death and all those kind of charming things. You, you have to figure out a way to keep them producing. And it wasn't a very effective way. It was coercive and obnoxious, but they did do that. Mm -hmm. You have enterprises in construction because the state can't manage all the construction that's going on. There is yeah. a bureau, there's the Ministry of Construction, which is supposed to do stuff. But it turns out that the railways have their own construction units, mm -hmm. that most of heavy industry has construction divisions to maintain and build factory units, that there are multiple construction enterprises scattered across the whole enterprise. And then um, there are thousands of little building companies hmm. because the government doesn't know what to do about housing. They don't have any money for housing. There's so much destroyed in the war. So what they let, they just let it go. Um, all these little building trade companies appear huh. to, to repair and construct and, you know, and, and they're guys who put in the plumbing and all this sort of things. Um, and they're completely outside the state sector for a long time, actually going into the sixties at least. So there's enterprises all over the place there. Um, in commerce, you, you have state stores, absolutely, uh, which gradually, and, and in the early 50s, sort of rapidly replaced private retailers. And you have state wholesalers, which are consolidated. But you also have every kind of illegal commerce you could ever imagine. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I mean, just, you know, hello, what, like, what do you got for sale? I don't know, we'll find out something. Um, and you have a preservation from the 30s, something like 400 public markets in every mm -hmm. city and town all over the country where the peasants come in and bring in um, their uh, surplus uh, grocery materials, um, mm -hmm. where people, women from the towns um, sell their embroideries uh, as, as uh, uh, things for young, young women or for, for brides. So these markets have occur in, in places like Budapest, I think they were every day, um, but in other places, once a week, maybe twice a week. And, and that's commerce and that's yeah. enterprise. Um, and then you, you learn that it's also illegal in all sorts of ways. Right, right. But, you know, then you go back to Foucault and you remember that there's a difference in, in uh, discipline and punish between illegalities and criminalities. Hmm. And, and the illegalities are all the things that aren't lawful that we just tolerate every day or manage ourselves to do <laughs> right. that, that nobody calls us on. Yeah. And the criminalities are the stuff that gets you to court. Well, mm -hmm. there's just waves of illegalities um, in this economy. And the same sort of thing happens in manufacturing because the big corporates, the big quasi-corporate state enterprises really don't know how to do everything. There's lots of stuff that they have to get somebody else to help them with. And so there's architects, there's, there's drafts people, there are all sorts of people in small businesses making molds or doing repair work all over the place. Um, yeah. And so it's enterprise. I mean, it's enterprise under socialism, even if it's not exactly socialist enterprise, because those guys are in it to make a forint. Yeah. So the subtitle of the book is uh, Creating the Theft Economy. And I think we're already starting to see uh, some theft come out in a variety of different <laughs> places. But uh, where where do you get that that concept? I mean, you know, like, why do you end up using that that phrase? And, and what were you trying to describe there? There's, there's sort of a probably mythical um, one-liner from a factory worker in Budapest who's, who's interviewed by an American journalist. Um, and it, it, he's, he's in a... Um, He's, he's in a, a, a nightclub and the journalist sees all these people in the nightclub with bottles of champagne and, you know, dancing girls and fancy meals and all the rest. And, and he's, he's a little amazed because he knows that the people in the streets are dressed pretty shabbily. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of complaint about the, the lack of income and, and so on. And so he asked this guy who's a skilled worker um, who's there with his wife, you know, having a nice time listening to the music, you know, how is this possible? And the story that's reported is the guy says to the journalist, well, it, here's the situation. The state steals from us and we return the favor. <laughs> and so what he tells him in, in more discursively is that the people you see here are the people who are able to steal a lot. Huh. Everybody steals some because the income that they're able to get from their jobs is so parsimonious yeah. that you have to get some money from somewhere else. Hence all these little market things and these little thefty dues. There's a, a great story that's in the book somewhere of, of a guy whose um, uncle works in a radio factory cutting out the backs to the radios. It used to be kind of a cardboardy thing that they would cut out mm -hmm. the, of the back for it and slide it in. And he figured out a way to cut out the cardboards from the big slabs in such a fashion as to leave long, thin pieces of leftover cardboard. And what he would do at night is take those and throw them over the fence to his nephew, hmm. who would then take them and sell them to shoe repair guys or insoles. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And the, the, the cost of doing business is zero. The risk, of course, you could get you know, grabbed and tossed in jail or something. The right. so cost of business was nothing, but it was all a profit. Mm-hmm. So there's your theft economy, right? Mm-hmm. You're, using, you're using the state resources, the leftovers from these uh, radio backs, um, in order to supply something that really was important, which was shoe repair, yeah. which the state hadn't provided for and people desperately needed. And the right. shoe repair guys would pay for materials because they weren't on the approved list to get leather and, and insoles and other stuff. So they had to figure out a workaround. And there are thousands of those. That's beautiful. Oh, I just want to say in passing, I think some of my colleagues, um, my a colleague here at Virginia Tech, Fabian Prieto Nanez, uh, who was, uh, is from Colombia, but also writes about Colombia, is doing good work on uh, stealing television via uh, satellites. And there's a, a woman named <laughs> Diana uh, Montaña um, uh, who writes about Mexican, Mexico City and the electric, electrification of electric, uh, Mexico City and writes about uh, electricity theft there. But I think there's like a new wave of pretty cool stuff being done on business and technology and illegality that uh, I think we should like do a panel or at some point or something like that because it's a last, great last topic. Summer, I read a novel based in Bombay um, and uh, the opening trope was this whole uh, apartment building where everybody was stealing electricity. Yeah. <laughs> and, then a, and then there's a fire and everything gets all goofy and so on and so forth. So yeah, one, of the, the things, go ahead. Yeah. one of the things this brings up um, is to ask then of the capitalist world. Hmm. So how far and deep is the theft economy? Right. Where does it occur? Why? How is it managed? Who profits? Mm-hmm. Who, who, keep, keep on, who, who benefits? Um, and why won't we talk about it? Yeah, yeah. Because one of the things people understand in the world that we live in now is that millions of people are underpaid for their labor. They're scrambling yes. as best they could. And so you, mm. you think we have, there's no connection to that, to the, the, the illegalities and criminalities that we spend a lot of time fussing with? Of course it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what happens in Hungary is after the Stalinists are out, one of the things that the Qadar government tries to do is to erode away the need for this theft environment. Huh. Mm-hmm. And they managed to do it in the countryside, in, in rural, in the agricultural transformation, which I'm writing just the last part about right now. But they can't get it under control in the rest of the economy because the rest of the hmm. economy is so disjointed and so poorly planned. It has so many holes that, yeah. that and, and they can't afford to raise the wages of the workers because that would blow everything out of the, the program yeah, yeah. for their capital investment. So they managed to, to solve, in a way, at least conditionally, this theft structure in the rural districts. But when they try to apply that to the rest of the economy, it doesn't work very well. This is where the, the end of the book is what's called the new economic reform or the new economic mechanism, which is a giant reform in the late 60s that tries to apply the lessons that they've learned in agriculture about how to make things work to the hmm. rest of the economy. And it it, hmm. um, it it not only screws up in all sorts of ways that just um, operationally, but the hard right retaliates and says hmm. everything's out of control. And what you might call the neo-Stalinists take power in the economy in 1972. And a year or so later, the oil smash happens and all of a sudden they can't afford um, any oil because Hungary doesn't have any oil to speak of. 
um, and all of their budgets go out of kilter and it's all the way down from there. Wow. So there's definitely a lot of like crazy stories in the in the first volume of the kind that we associate with like production quotas in the Soviet Union or communist China. Mm-hmm. But but the flip side of that is that um, and I think of this as kind of like a Scrantonian theme, which is that it's also amazing how much people are managing to get done, even in this, this context with very little money and you know few resources. So, you know, like what what sticks out to you about that kind of that side of the story, like the resilience of people or the the, the ability of people to just get things done, even though they have almost nothing. Um, there's a terrific book by Robin Holt. Um, let me see if I can find this without making a mess. Um, and it, it it speaks to this question of of strategy without design. Hmm. And and what it suggests is that one of the most powerful social processes is coping. Hmm. Yeah. And it's it's not rebellion. It's it's not opposition. It, and it's not resignation either. Yeah. It's retaining a certain agency while coping with the circumstances that you have to confront. And I found that just brilliant and absolutely um, mesmerizing. And so what is going on here is that the the people in the rest of the country and even lots of folks in Budapest learn how to cope with the goofiness of the situation they're in. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are hoping it'll just fall to pieces in the 50s and that, you know, we'll go back to forward sideways to something different. Who knows? But a bunch of them realize that you can actually you can actually do something intelligent here. Um, you can make a. Uh, a living. Mm-hmm. By coping, you can make a pile of money by coping. Yeah. You can actually you can you can move up in an organization by coping. There are all sorts of strategies which don't actually have a design behind them. Yeah. But which are a continuous adaptation to changing circumstances, which you learn how to manage. Mm-hmm. And that's what these guys are doing all over the place and at every level of the society, except at the top, because you still have a dictatorship. Yeah. At the very top. And with that situation, um, there's no coping from the leadership. But then that leadership- there's fantasies of control? Well, they imagine they're in charge and they- Yeah. They imagine they're in charge, um, but they are actually struggling to keep everything from falling to pieces and it does fall to pieces in 56. Yeah, yeah. The new government, and this is this is where there's this brilliant work by Susanna Varga um, from Budapest, hmm. uh, the new government under Qadar begins to understand that they have to listen to the people. That's a great line that she drops on the middle of the table. You have to listen to the people and then adapt your policies to what they're already doing. Mm. Instead of doing a top-down thing, you do it inside out. And this is one of the, the clever or genius or whatever you want to call it, capabilities that the Qatar administration begins to develop of listening and then building policy on that. The, huh. the deeper contradictions of the whole pro- program that's not going to go so well. But, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, um, 
I want to talk to you about maintenance because maintenance is a theme in the book for sure. But it seems like one of these places, I mean, it's part of the theft economy, part of this coping thing is that you have workers skipping, not showing up on the job because they can go to the black market or gray market or however we want to think about that and like fix crap in people's houses and make more money doing that, right? Just like becoming unofficial repair people. They, they show up just enough so that they don't get dismissed. Mm-hmm. Because there's a point at which you really will get fired, I even see. in socialism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> but, it, yeah. But, um, yeah. but it's like, I mean, is it like St. Monday or something like that? Oh, like, there's St. Monday, absolutely. Although yeah. that has the tendency <laughs> to do... St. Saint Monday in, in Hungary is, is in the smaller uh, provincial towns or cities, county seats, where there are factories of one sort or another, but the factory workers come from the countryside. Mm-hmm. And so they leave early on Friday and they come back late on Monday because they spend the weekend with their families in the villages um, yeah. working on their little farms. Okay. So there's okay. There, there are people with what are called double lives is the phrase they use huh. in Hungary. And of course this drives management crazy, but you know what? There aren't enough people. Right. There's only, there's only 10 million Hungarians mm-hmm. and nobody else speaks Hungarian. Mm-hmm. You know, you, this is one of the things that the Orban people have been going crazy with. You, you, if you if you bring in people to take the places of the workers who've left the country, you know, there's another whole wave of, of exiles, but mostly economic exiles at this point. They don't know how to speak Hungarian. There's a there's yeah. a restricted there's a restricted population, and so you have to figure out a strategy to integrate those folks in the, into the society. And that's not something that Fidesz people are terribly interested. In. But that's a separate issue. So right. if, if you go back. Um, to, to where we were, these folks are trying to figure out a strategy um, for the, the longer term development of a plausible economy. And at the same time, um, they have to recognize that the entire system that they're involved with is, is, is rife with contradictions that don't seem to be readily resolvable. Yeah. So maintenance becomes one of those fundamental contradictions. Hmm. Maintenance is central to how you industrialize. Right. I mean, it doesn't do you any good to build a steel mill and have it fall apart in three years. Right. But if you if you don't understand how critical maintenance is, which these political guys in the Stalinist bureaucracy don't, mm-hmm. and if you're not going to listen to the engineers who are going to tell you, you know, we've got to have spare parts, we've got to have backup stocks, we've got to yeah, have yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know some sort of of um, coal. Uh, stock that sits there 50,000 tons or something. If you can't listen to those guys or you don't think you can afford it or it's just not in the plan, yeah. then maintenance becomes a massive problem for the development dynamic and hence a contradiction. You can build it, but it then falls apart. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's such a, I mean, to, you know, we can think about the US system or capitalist systems and how, you know, like we, if we think about like, motor you know automobiles and how like parts you and i've talked about this before right spare parts is like it, it's it's a crucial part of the system exactly well and it goes all as we've talked about it it goes all the way back to mechanical reapers and things like this the fact that you know replacement parts were an absolutely crucial part of these industrialization processes so there are there are places where we can compare what was going on in hungary to Oh, yes. I mean, re- replacement parts um, 
for, for a very long time in industrialization were made on site. Yes. You, you, had, you had guys who would carve the wood and make it you know, a new cog for something, or you yeah. would have somebody with a, a, a little belt-driven lathe who could figure out a way to make a, a replacement bit for some other machine. Um, but once you get into a, a more complex industrial system, you wind up having specialized institutions that make parts. Right. Or segments of institutions that make whole things that also make parts. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in Hungary, um, one of the lovely things I, I discovered was, was, oh, those are my other sources, by the way. There's these nice people in the CIA who I also Right, a lot. exactly, yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, the, the CIA had all kinds of spies. Um, uh -huh. they're, known as, they're known as informants, by the way. Okay. Um, and, and their names are what's blacked out in the CIA reports that have been um, um, declassified. But there are thousands of these, actually there's a million of these from all over the world, but there are thousands of them about uh, Hungary that have been declassified reports and the reports on factories and how they worked in the mm -hmm, period mm -hmm. up to 56. After 56, they don't have so many people informing because lots of them left the country. Uh, but anyway, um, what, what you wind up with is these reports on places um, that are trying to figure out how to acquire spare parts for, let's say, tractors. Yeah. And there are factories that are assigned the job of producing tractor parts. Mm -hmm. But they don't do that. The, the prices that are in the massive state price books for the spare parts are so low huh. that it doesn't pay them to make a whole lot of spare parts. They make entire tractors. You want to buy a new tractor? I'll sell you one. <laughs> You want, you want to buy, buy a spare part? No. You want to buy a camshaft? You're on your own. Uh, <laughs> so you know. So and then it gets it gets more beautiful. Um, right after the war, there, there's this terrific CIA report about auto repair um, in Hungary, mm. and it turns out that it, and and there's not a ton of autos. This is still a largely horse right. economy. But nonetheless, um, this this guy, whoever he is, he must work in some central agency, reports that there are 57 different auto models that are um, existent on the Hungarian plane, ranging okay. from Fords to Mercedes to mm -hmm. weirdo Russian things to stuff yeah. that, you know, you know, whatever, the equivalent of Yugo's really terrible to you. Yeah. And <laughs> trying to find parts for 57 different kinds of cars is yeah. totally disaster. So the stuff can't get fixed in these, these um, automobiles and trucks as well, which is more crucial. Um, just start to fall to pieces and, and mm -hmm. drop out of the fleet. Now, years later, this same problem starts to happen um, for agricultural equipment, which is where I'm living right now, um, because virtually all of the Hungarian agricultural equipment is imported from either the Soviet Union or Czechoslovakia, which makes really good stuff, um, some from Poland, and, and they make a few things themselves in, in Budapest. And you need spare parts from foreign countries. Oops. That ain't easy either. And, and mm -hmm. the Russians are notorious for promising spare parts in, in March so you can get ready for the plowing season and receiving the spare parts in July where the tractors have been sitting idle for three months, four mm -hmm. months, five months. So spare parts become one of these, um, if you will, Hughesian moments. Mm. You know, it's, it's a place where you have this this total bottleneck in the economy, which has implications that spread out all over the place. Yeah. And 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 paralyze the capabilities of, of mobilizing the hmm. economic possibilities that are in front of you. 
Um, and of course, the, the program that's designed by the plan provides no incentive for the major corporations, the major enterprises in metalworking um, to make a lot of spare parts because mm -hmm. the price book for spare parts is set in place. It's 262 volumes, by the way, the price book for, for, for everything in the economy. Oh, wow. There, there's these giant, yeah, there's, there's huge shelves. The, the, the one for auto repair is like 500 pages for every single, they've got everything. It's wow, wow. The CIA actually translated some of this stuff, so it's really beautiful. Anyway, but God knows why. I mean, it's totally bizarre. But anyway, right. <laughs> um, so they, they set up this, this price system in 1949 when the Communist Party comes to power, and they revise it in 1959. That's a little slow. That's slow. Yeah. And then they revised it again in 1966. It's a little closer, seven years yeah. instead of 10. Well, yeah. the problem is you, if you're in a socialist economy, you can't let the market change prices. Right. I mean, you this is Hayek's nightmare, right? Absolutely. You've got everything <laughs> interlocked with the plan. And so the yeah. allocations have to be done on price. But then the perverse incentives of having misplaced the price yeah. concatenate yeah. throughout the system. And one of the places that happens is fair price. Huh. That's so interesting. I've been having way too much fun. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you, you've started to, all right, because it's kind of hard to talk about this volume, but uh, um, without talking about the one you're writing now, which you're about halfway through. Not quite, but on, yeah, on the cusp Getting of there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you're going to finish that up. Do you know what's next for you? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I suspect I mean, I, first I, I did a, a kind of um, a choice thing about 19, oh no, about 2017, because I knew I wanted to go after working on China. I wanted to do something in Central Europe, the other mm -hmm. socialism, you know, right, so to speak. Right. And so I did a whole lot of, of downloading and reading of, of on, on Hungary and Poland. Mm -hmm. So I have boxes of material on Poland. And, and Poland is fascinating in its own way, but Poland is the closest thing to never socialist that you're going to find. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it was technically socialist, just like Hungary was, but the entire agricultural system was private. The right. Collectivization failed completely. I mean, all of this is pretty well known, and the, and the Polish environment doesn't offer as many opportunities for discovery, I think. I don't know for sure, but I don't think. Um, as what happened in Hungary, where I was just being amazed. Well, I sent you these, these crazy sources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just being amazed at what was going on there and, and how people were, were putting together out of, out of matchsticks this entire economy. Um, so I, I don't think I'm going to do the Poland thing. And, and that leaves me with uh, the, 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 the terrible prospect of having to think up something else. <laughs> I, would, I would think, I, I guess with, with where you've been heading with, you know, this kind of, we can call it global, we, I don't know, we can call it just not, not the typical spaces, uh, histories. Like, is there anything in Latin America that appeals to you or well, Asia? Uh, First, you have to recognize that at some point I'm going to run out of this language um, bonus area. Yeah, that's and true. So, uh, at my age, it would be really interesting to try to learn a whole series of non-English languages, but probably yeah. not 
productive. Right. Uh, one place, one place that has appeal because of its Englishness um, is Nigeria. Hmm. Yeah. Which is famously known as a failed state and was an oil empire kind of thing, and where the the Brits really behaved badly, I think. Mm -hmm. in the transition out of colonialism, though I haven't read enough about that to be at all certain. Um, and it, it's one of those places that, that has this um, oil curse, which it's mm -hmm. called in the literature, where there's vast riches and the possibility of sharing it for national development is certainly there and it fails completely. Yeah. So I don't know whether there's something to say. One of the things that, that is helpful is if the Americans get paranoid about something, yes. um, in the they CIA, produce documentation. Then they exactly. produce all this documentation. Right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I don't. I don't think there, there's probably enough stuff to do something with Nigeria without actually having to do something more serious than sit in my study and and dial up the giant web bases, website bases that. Uh, yeah. So who knows? I mean, you know, in a, in a, yeah. in a little while, I'm going to be even older than I am now. Maybe it will be time. Um, to do something completely different, which would be fun. The last thing I'm going to do is to try to write a synthesis. I think that's the death of ideas. Yeah, I appreciate that about you. I mean, I think you're a you're an anti-synthesis kind of person. That's that's built into your instincts about the world, right? That's right. Absolutely yeah. right. It's. I a, mean, it's with, a thing. with, you, with you, that, you, go ahead. No, we're, we're we're pressed all the time, and I see it in my yeah. colleagues. As you get to be more senior, you're supposed to have a statement thing. Yes. You know, yeah. it draws all these, but what it does is to distort what you've learned. Yeah. And suppress the, the individuality and the distinctiveness of the mm -hmm. historical behaviors that you've spent all your time trying to reconstruct. Um, yeah. And so wedging things into sort of clumsy categories that, that flatten the, the, the diversity of reality is just not, not on my agenda now. I'm with you. I think you and Patrick in the in the book you guys wrote together um, talk about it. In one place you talk about it is not coming up with another kind of grand theory because we had Chandlerianism. This is the work of Alfred Chandler for a while. And it's like sometimes people push to like, well, we need something else of, of that kind of ilk. And it's like, no, don't do it. You know, I see this all the time in the uh, the history of technology where like, you know, there was a period with like the social construction of technology was everything, right? And yeah, then there was biker like, and all those smart people. It was great. Yeah, it was great, but it was like not. Then it got kind of waned, and then some people hanker for another kind of framework or something. I'm like, I don't. We don't need that. What we need to do is go well, look at places and. Um, well, what, what what people need to do is go back and read um, Bruno Latour's Aramis. Hmm. Read it very closely because what all Bruno does is to say, find a situation, find a conflict, follow the actors, identify the stakeholders, and see who defaults, see who supports, see who can't decide, see what technologies are tested and what technologies never get a chance to mm -hmm. get out of the blocks. All of a sudden, you learn something about process. And, yeah. and that's exactly what we're about. We're about process. We're, I mean, mm -hmm. having it all settled is, is kind of tiresome. I mean, bleh. Um And that's what synthesis does for, is trying to do for you is settle it. Yeah, I, I think synthesis is trying to stop the conversation. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. 
on the other hand, um, uh, my conversation will get stopped too at some point. So, you know, there's, there's some things you can't really fight. <laughs> well, Phil, I think you've been doing great, man. And I think that you're doing really uh, unique and creative work uh, and finding creative ways to do it too with the sources. So I really appreciate what you're up to and I'm a big fan. So thank you thank for you taking the much. time. It's a, a great treat to have a chance to see you. It's been a while. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>